George Orwell uh, was an author, a, a novelist in the 20th century, and in one of his uh, more famous books, uh, he wrote this. He wrote, we were taught, he's speaking about himself and his uh, contemporaries as he was growing up, he says, we were taught the lower classes smell. In my childhood, we were brought up to believe that they were dirty. Very early in life, you acquired the idea that there was something subtly repulsive about a working class body. You would not get nearer to it than you could help. Now, perhaps we wouldn't use that language, and perhaps we wouldn't uh, have exactly the same experience as George Orwell did. Uh, But sometimes... Uh, without even realizing it, we can fall into the trap of despising people who are not like us. Uh, We can get sometimes into an attitude which despises people that are less educated than us, uh, less well-off than us, people who for whatever reason, we feel are beneath us. I'm sure most of us here would not consider consider ourselves upper class. Uh, We can see many people perhaps above us uh, who are richer and better educated and uh, of a higher social standing. But if we're honest, uh, it is very easy to fall into the trap of still seeing people as below us. Uh, We're not up there, but we're not down there either. And that is an attitude which is all too easy to fall into. And the Bible, and in particular the book of Proverbs, frequently speaks against such an attitude. And it warns us that God is looking at the way we treat other people, rich or poor, high class or lower class, whoever they might be, God cares about how we look after our neighbor. Look particularly at verse 22. This is the first proverb of these sayings of the wise. And the wise man writes, Do not rob the poor because he is poor, nor oppress the afflicted at the gates. For the Lord will plead their cause and plunder the soul of those who plunder them. And believe it or not, this thought is repeated again in verse 28. In verse 28 it says, Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. And that is the proverb uh, I'd like to spend a bit of time looking at. This morning, do not remove the ancient landmark. And before we get into what this proverb does mean, uh, I need to explain what it does not mean. Uh, Because this proverb has been interpreted in different ways through church history. Uh, There was a a Baptist group, I understand, uh, once upon a time called the Landmarkists. I don't know if they still exist today, and they called themselves landmarkers. 
And they got that name from this proverb, do not remove the ancient landmark. But they interpreted uh, the ancient landmark to be traditions and practices that had been passed down to them. And they said it was important that they did not lose, remove, take away the ancient landmarks passed down to them. Now, unfortunately, that's not what this proverb is teaching. Uh, Now, it is good wisdom that we should not do away with practices and traditions willy-nilly. Someone once said wisely, you should not remove a fence until you know why it was put there. Uh, That's good advice to follow. You might find yourself facing an angry bull or something in a field. Uh, You should always ask the question, why was a fence put up before you remove it? But uh, just because something is old and because it's been there a long time doesn't mean necessarily that it should stay there. Just as it's also true that just because something is new and innovative, it must therefore be put in place. Whether something is old or whether something is new tells us very little about its usefulness or whether it is good to still have. We should judge everything by God's words. Whether it's old or whether it's new, we should test it to see, is it good? Is it useful? Is it beneficial? Some old traditions are a hindrance as well as some new innovations, and we need wisdom to judge. But all that is simply to say that's not what this proverb is teaching. That's not the sort of landmark it's talking about. And to show you how that's the case, if you have your Bible, you can look into the next chapter. And in chapter 23, we have this proverb repeated, but with more detail. Uh, Proverbs chapter 23, verses 10 and 11 says... Do not remove the ancient landmark, nor enter the fields of the fatherless. For their redeemer is mighty. He will plead their cause against you. In chapter 23, we understand better what is meant by removing the ancient landmark. It's to do with entering the fields of the fatherless. Uh, Landmarks in the Old Testament, especially in the land of Israel, were put in place to mark territory boundaries. Uh, They indicated which land belonged to who, what what land belonged where. And moving a landmark was a subtle way of doing a land grab, of seizing someone else's land. And God repeatedly warned the Israelites to respect the ancient land land boundaries that he himself had put in place. Uh, If you want to know where that is, if you look in the book of Deuteronomy and chapter 19 and verse 14, uh, we read these words. Uh, This is Deuteronomy 19, verse 14. God, speaking through Moses, says, You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, In your inheritance, which you will inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Likewise, in Deuteronomy 27, verse 
17. This is in the blessings and cursings that the children of Israel were to repeat. In verse 17, it says, Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. God said, you must not move the landmarks. You must not subtly, secretly, surreptitiously shift the boundaries to try and get more land for yourself. And as you can imagine, uh, there was a temptation particularly for rich, influential, powerful people to oppress those who were weaker, less influential, poorer, and seize their land for their own because they knew the weaker, poorer people couldn't stand up for their rights so easily. Uh, It's very much like the school bully uh, who steals the scrawny kid's lunch. Uh, It's the same principle in a larger way. Uh, The bully can pick on the scrawny child because they know the child cannot stand up for themselves as well as someone who was stronger. And so they can take that child's lunch. And it's exactly the same thing happening here, but on a bigger scale. And God says, do not remove the ancient landmark. Do not take what is not yours. We might ask, but but how does this apply to us? Because we don't really have landmarks in quite the same way today. Perhaps we might be tempted to grow our gardens by moving our fences and stealing land that way. Perhaps that's not too far out of the bounds of imagination. But how does it apply to us in everyday life? Well, again, I need to start first by looking at how this does not apply, or how it does not first and foremost apply. Because it's very easy, sometimes, to hear wisdom like this and immediately use it as a stick to beat someone else. Uh, I remember uh, seeing a video just a few years back when Theresa May was Prime Minister, and there was a little girl uh, who was doing a YouTube video. Her parents obviously set up the camera, and she was um, posted this video on YouTube. And in this video, and she can't have been more than six, seven years old, um, perhaps a little bit older, and in the video she was complaining to Theresa May because she had seen a homeless person in the streets and she was uh, having a go at Theresa May for allowing this to happen. Look at this homeless people. What are you doing, Theresa May? And we can so often be like that. We see problems, and our immediate thought is, why is someone else not fixing this? Why is someone else not dealing with this problem? But our first reaction when we read this proverb, when we read verse 22, do not rob the poor because he is poor, poor, nor oppress the afflicted at the gate. Our first thought should be, am I doing that? How am I unfairly benefiting from people more vulnerable than I am? In what ways am I defending those who are weaker than me, those who are poorer than me, those who are more vulnerable than me. That's what our first question should be. Uh, Am I? Are you taking advantage of people economically or socially worse off 
than yourself? Uh, Are you taking more than your fair share at the expense of others? Uh, How do you treat others when you're buying and selling? Uh, We all want a good deal, don't we? And there's nothing wrong in haggling for a good deal. But do we do it at the expense of the person we are buying from or selling to? Uh, Are we entirely honest in our dealings? Uh, Are you more concerned about getting a good deal or more about the person you are dealing with? The Bible teaches that we should have, first and foremost, a concern for one another, especially those who are more vulnerable than we are. Uh, Psalm 82 Verses 3 and 4 says, Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hands of the wicked. Now, perhaps when we read those verses, we think of kind of ancient uh, bandits who might rob uh, widows and orphans. Uh, But we have people like that today. Perhaps not bandits in the streets in quite the same way, although we do have that as well. Uh, But we have uh, telemarketers, don't we? Uh, People phoning up and they prey on the vulnerable. Uh, They deliberately phone numbers in the hope of finding people who are less likely to question what they hear. And they prey on the naive and the poor. And Psalm 82 says we should defend the poor and the fatherless. Now, we all know there are sharks out there, don't we? And we have responsibility to look after people who are at risk from scammers, for example. So you see, what this proverb teaches is relevant to us today. Do we have a concern for people who are more vulnerable than we are. And this proverb teaches us why we should as well. Uh, The Bible teaches us why we should. And the chief reason it gives is because God is on the side of the poor and the weak. And did you notice what it said in verse 23? Uh, Verse 22 reads, Do not rob the poor because he is poor, nor oppress the afflicted at the gate, For the Lord will plead their cause and plunder the soul of those who plunder them. Likewise, in Proverbs 23 and in verse 10, it says, Do not remove the ancient landmark, nor enter the fields of the fatherless, for their redeemer is mighty. He will plead their cause against you. Do you hear what those Proverbs are saying? It's saying, although the widow and the orphan and the vulnerable, they may appear weak, which is why they're so often victimized, although they appear weak, actually they are mighty. Although they may appear defenseless, they actually have the greatest defense because God is watching them. God is watching over them. And God warns that if we rob the poor, 
if we oppress the afflicted, the Lord himself will plead their cause and plunder the soul of those who plunder them. Uh, He says, if we, as it were, remove the landmarks, we're told in verse 11 of Proverbs 23, their redeemer is mighty and he will plead their cause against you. So the first reason why we must defend the cause of the weak and the poverty-stricken is because God is on their side. And if we put ourselves against them, then we make ourselves the enemy of God himself. And there are hundreds of verses in the Bible to demonstrate this. Exodus 22, verses 22 to 24 says, You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry out at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. Hard to think of stronger words than that. Psalm 146, verse 9. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widow, but the way of the wicked he turns upside down. God even gave special instructions to the Israelites to make sure that the poor were looked after. Deuteronomy 24, 19 to 22 says, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterwards. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore I command you to do this thing. God is on the side of the poor and the weak and he cares how we treat people more vulnerable than ourselves. And of course, when Christ came to this world, he didn't come as a wealthy ruler. He didn't come as a member of the upper class. How did he come? Essentially as a peasant as a carpenter in the despised town, village of Nazareth. When God chose to become a human being, he chose the body of a peasant. That should give us pause for thought. Uh, That should help us to re-examine our priorities in life. Is your biggest desire to become wealthy? Is your biggest desire to become Prosperous Is your biggest desire to become prominent in society? Well, that wasn't Christ's first desire. Christ left the glory of heaven and became poor because his motivation was love. He came to save us. That is what his focus was on. He loved the poor and the weak because that is what we all are, if we are honest. That's the first reason why we must care for the poor and the weak, because God is on their side. But there's a second reason as well, which the New Testament in particular makes clear. The second reason is because the way we treat others, particularly those who are more vulnerable, 
demonstrates the genuineness or otherwise of our own faith. That's a bit of a mouthful, so I'll say that again. The way we treat other people, particularly the vulnerable, demonstrates the genuineness or otherwise of our own faith. Uh, James, book of James, chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, says this. It says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. New Testament clearly says this is what true religion, if we can use that word as James does, true faith in God shows itself, demonstrates itself in our treatment of others, particularly the orphans and widows in their trouble. This is how we demonstrate how real our faith in Christ is. If Christ has truly saved us, if Christ has truly forgiven us, if God is truly living in our hearts, then he will be shaping us to become more like him. And the love that he has for the poor and the afflicted will show itself in our lives in some way or another. And if it doesn't, it raises the question whether God is really working in our lives at all. It's important what we teach, but it's also important how we act and it reveals whether Christ is living in us or not. Uh, Jesus, of course, taught himself, didn't he? That on the judgment day, God, or he himself, will separate the sheep from the goats. And, in fact, I'll read it. In Matthew chapter 25, he said some quite terrifying words. In Matthew chapter 25, and... Uh, I'll read from verse. Uh, I'll read from verse. Uh, it seems to have disappeared. Uh, I'll read it from verse thirty-one. This is Matthew twenty-five. It says, "When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory." All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a sheep divides his sheep and the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Jesus says the way we treat particularly 
poor and vulnerable believers will be counted as being done unto him. That's how seriously he views how we treat other believers, particularly the vulnerable other believers in particular. That is the second reason why it is so important. It demonstrates the reality of our faith. Can I ask you that question? Do you have a concern for the poor? Uh, Do you have a concern for other believers in particular who are worse off than you? Uh, That is the prime evidence of God the Holy Spirit working in your heart, that you have a love which is showing itself in practical ways. Uh, In 1 John, John writes, doesn't he? He says, it's not enough to just say to someone, be warm, be filled. Anyone can say that. But if your words are not followed up with action, then they're just empty. They're meaningless. Our concern needs to be more than just empty words. Let me just close by uh, sharing the famous story of Martin the Cobbler. Uh, You may have heard this. It was written by Tolstoy many years ago. But uh, Martin was a believer, was a Christian, And every night he would read his Bible. And one night as he was reading, he thought he heard someone calling to him. And as he listened, he heard a voice say, Martin, Martin, look out into the street tomorrow for I will come to visit you. And he looked around and he could not see whose voice it was. And he presumed it must be the Lord himself speaking to him. And the next morning, Martin watched eagerly out of his window for his Lord, for Jesus. But as he watched, he saw an old man freezing in the cold as he shoveled away snow. And Martin invited him in for a warm drink, and Martin told him about Jesus. And the man was moved to tears. When he left, the man thanked Martin for the food, both for his soul and his body. Later, Martin, as he was eagerly looking out the window, saw a mother shivering in the cold and struggling to feed her baby. He brought them into warmth, and when he discovered that she had sold her shawl for food, he took a garment that he himself had long treasured, his wife's own shawl, and tenderly draped it around her. Later, he saw a young boy stealing from an older lady. He went outside and settled the argument, extending love and compassion towards both of them. And others throughout the day came and left the cobbler's shop, and he helped them all, but still he saw no sign of the Lord. And eventually dusk came on, and Martin was terribly disappointed that he had not met Christ. But as he closed the day reading his Bible, he read these words. Whatever you do to the least of these brothers and sisters, you are doing unto me. That highlights what, Matthew, what Christ, through Matthew, is teaching in Matthew 25. That it matters how we treat other people, particularly the poor and the vulnerable. And of course, in closing... Uh, This is not to say in any way that we should 
feed people and help people at the expense of sharing the gospel. No, it's both. It's always both. We love people, body and soul. Amy Carmichael, I've shared this many times before. I'll say again, Amy Carmichael once famously said that she's always, uh, she was a missionary in India, and she said that in her experience, she always discovered that souls were more or less attached to bodies. (laughs) And if that's the case, we should care for people's bodies as much as people's souls. Preach the gospel, yes. Feed the hungry, yes. We do both because both are important to God. And with those thoughts in mind, we've, I've chosen as our final hymn number 607. 607. And it's a hymn which is really a prayer uh, asking for Christ's own heart and Christ's own attitude to be reflected in us. It's 607. May the mind of Christ my Saviour live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. So we'll close by singing number 607.